Hi, I'm Joe. And I'm Dave. And we're the hosts of the Chasing Tomorrow podcast, where we bring you stories that delve into the science and spirit behind intriguing people doing extraordinary things. Welcome to the Chasing Tomorrow podcast. This week, it's episode 40. We're going to talk about personal and executive development this week with Robert McNaughton. Robert is an executive coach and facilitator who specializes in balancing interpersonal development along individual, alongside individual performance. Robert supports leaders in resolving, resolving the gaps between vision, roadmaps, team alignment, and, sustain, and sustainable execution. Robert founded the Integral Center in Boulder, Colorado, in association with renowned philosopher Ken Wilber. So let's get diving deep into sharpening the skills needed so that we can all find the razor's edge in our own individual pursuits and, and, and our chosen crafts. Welcome to the Chasing Tomorrow podcast, Robert. Thanks for that great introduction, Dave. I'm really flattered to be here, not being, you know, the typical, you know, uh, high performance athletes that you, you normally have on here. So I hope I can, I can catch up with the pack. Yeah. Well, Robert, oh, I, I think, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think we put you sort of at this stage of the podcast 40 weeks into it, because while I think we've done a reasonable job digging into the why behind these intriguing people doing extraordinary things. I think your practices over the past 25 years, sort of both studying, you know, the art of excellence, um, looking at human potential, thinking about, you know, why some perform better than others. And then also how you help people, you know, get beyond sort of their shortcomings. I think it might actually be the perfect timing to sort of, in a way, put a button on, what is it we've been sort of trying to figure out? Because you'll probably bring some insights that oddly enough, the athletes themselves can't figure out because they're in the middle of doing it. So, uh, so sort of a free form start, but, but maybe Robert, before you jump into the answers, if you wouldn't mind, just sort of uh -huh. set a bit of the context for who you are, how you found your way into this space, and, you know, and what it is that's inspiring you to keep working on this. Yeah. Okay. I'll do the best of, uh, I can to give a succinct introduction <laughs> to, you know, color in some of the outline that you gave there, Dave, in, in the introduction. And the best way I like to describe it is, um, you know, by starting, like I grew up in Southeast, uh, United States in Atlanta, Georgia, which, uh, uh, I had both very deep traditional Southern roots. Um, so, you know, conservative in a lot of ways, but, but traditional and, but also being in a metropolitan city in Atlanta. So the, the, you know, the meritocracy, um, achievement, I went to a prep school that was very competitive and it was all about, you know, what sports team are you on and how well you did on the SAT and what Ivy league school you're going to go to. And that, you know, um, ruined me in some ways or, or very much challenged me, <coughs> excuse me. <laughs> <clears throat> swallowed my performance tea a little off there. <laughs> um, but, you know, what happened was, is like, on one hand, I was being told that I had all the gifts and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the uniquenesses and everything to, to succeed. But the normal markers of success was like, I, I didn't really care to be on the sports team or that wasn't working out. 
um, you know, academia started to change a context for me. So the, the normal metrics of success weren't, weren't reflecting to me what I was being told. And that created a lot of cognitive dissonance. So I needed to get out of there. So I, I hightailed it as soon as I graduated out to uh, Boulder, Colorado. And, um, you know, the excuse was to go to engineering school in Boulder. But uh, the, the real truth is I heard that people were rock climbing without ropes in the full moon in altered states. And I was like, okay, I, you know, I need to be there uh, if I'm going to figure any of this out. Mm-hmm. And in going to, to Boulder in a place where the, the meritocracy was a whole different, you know, situation, there were a lot more people seeking and looking under every stone to find meaning. And I was doing very much the same thing, which turned out in retrospect to be a lot of deconstruction of deconstructing what I thought mattered most. And um, for anybody that's gone down the postmodern path of deconstructing where they come from, there's a lot to learn, but <laughs> it's, it's not hard to wash up on the shores of a perspectival madness when you try to figure out what your values are at the end of the day. And so uh, in doing that, I started uh, this center, the Integral Center, which is an adult adult development learning center in in Boulder that focused on training facilitators and leadership development, but was working with, um, you know, by plugged in with Ken Wilber and the Integral Movement, kind of the creme de la creme of personal growth and spiritual leaders. And, and really starting to like get a sense of it's kind of like, okay, well, what does matter and, and how do we interact with it? And then being the leader of that company, I got uh, in some ways martyred as a, you know, postmodern uh, pastor when people would be like, hey, who put you in charge? And, and I'd be like, wait, I, I, oh, am I not in charge? <laughs> you know, and uh, having to deal with uh, all the problems of being a white male leader in a very progressive culture. And then when we finally mm-hmm. exited that company and now, you know, being an executive coach, I get to help with leaders who are working with exactly these issues, which uh, seems to be very relevant. Well, more and more relevant um, these days of like coming from a very kind of traditional and modern place coming out into a very progressive postmodern place, which was, you know, kind of born out of the inadequacies of those things in trying to make sense of it all. And that's what integral philosophy is at the end of the day is making sense of all those things. So that was a scattershot. I threw a lot against the wall there. So why don't I want to pause and see what we want to double click on. No, no, absolutely. I think that's, it's, it's wonderful to know, you know, exactly where you're at right now. And then, you know, we can talk, of course, and, and kind, of, kind of construct the, the foundation of, 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 you know, why you decided. So let's talk a little bit about your childhood. I mean, where did you have really strong integral leaders around you? Did you, did you find a lot of, um, you know, support within the community to, you know, to, to form leadership? Or were you a bit of a follower uh, growing up? Yeah, I mean, I, I was always able to to ha- had enough confidence and enough skill, just inherent skill to kind of be comfortable wherever I was. So I had lots mm-hmm. of different friends and I had friends who are athletes and I had friends who are, you know, taking more alternative paths. And so I, I didn't really have much of a context for, you know, where I was supposed to go. There was the kind of generalized context that, you know, our parents and in a prep school environment, like all of the parents were like, you know, what, what is the most competitive school that we can get you into? And that was so kind of allowed and in the background, it, it was, it made a lot more space for like, well, you know, what else can we pursue here? And I did have mentors and I, and I think that's a great question, Dave, because it brings to mind the, the best mentor I came across when I was in high school, uh, ran the experiential education program at my school. We had a, it was called the discovery program and peer leadership. And it was taking, you know, freshmen into the woods to go rock climbing, to go caving, to, you know, be camping for the first time for a lot of these kids. 
and dealing with what comes up in those circumstances. And I took to that like a fish to water. And that was the beginning of my facilitation path of like, uh, how, how do we make sense of our experience of things when put into challenging environments? And mm-hmm. I think that's really what did lead me out to Boulder was that's where I got into to rock climbing and, and that kind of adventure mentality. And it wasn't just about, you know, pure success. It was much more of an inquiry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Robert, you know, we, we spoke last week with uh, Johann Steen uh, about why he became an ultra marathoner. He read, you know, Born to Run, Chris McDougall, and it was, it was intriguing, you know, like, oh my God, that's possible. And what yeah. we, we dove in a little bit was that the more sterile we make our lives, the more likely we are to look for externalities to stimulate, to make us feel like something is happening, you know, and to reach into that capability that in and of itself, if it's too sterile or too predictable, we don't really learn as much. And so, so it seems like you went down that path and then it seems like you created a formula out of that with this in a sense, right? Which would be, hey, you need to do something if you're going to achieve or realize some result out of this system that we run us every day. Because it's, it's yes. got this innate capability, right? It's like an engine in your car. When the car is off, it still has a lot of latent power in it. It's just not on. You had to turn it on and right. all of us, right? So have you used that sort of concept and then started to, you know, sponsor that into people's minds so they know what to do? I think that's right. I think that that is the narrative that works for me is that it's a bit of a hero's journey mm-hmm. in that, you know, I, I took the road less traveled, the Robert Frost poem, like lives loud in the story of me, right? I took the road less traveled and that made all the difference. And I've certainly, I have my imposter syndrome and have like, it was like, ooh, geez, I kind of wish I had took and, taken the traditional road <laughs> now that I look at the careers that some of my, you know, my peers at the time uh, have traveled. But it made all the difference. And so I went into the untraveled places um, and into you know, the, the mysteries and the uncharted uh, territory. And I, I encountered many challenges in those places. And now that I am coming around to another stage of my career, I'm seeing that what the gifts that I uncovered in that journey are valuable. And as a, now that I'm an executive coach for startup founders who have you know, just gotten a lot of funding for their dream project, now they have to hire a management team and have difficult conversations and tell the investors that are breathing down their necks, like what's happening, um, that they, they don't have a good idea of what their why is either. And that I'm able to create some context, create some, uh, some inquiry for them so that they can you know, have a bit of that vision quest of really asking the question, why am I doing this? And either reconstruct or construct for the first time a bigger meaning. And there's a lot of opportunity for that. The world needs a lot of help, uh, well, always, but it, the conversation is more live these days. And so when people have the opportunity to say, what impact can I make based on the work that I'm doing in the world? And so it, it's, it's almost surprising to me that you know, my wayward journey has become valuable. But I think that's, you know, at the end of the day, that's what a lot of us have in store. No, I, I think so, Robert. I, I think that there's, you know, there, there's a real need in the world for, for people that have ventured into the great unknown and, and, have, and, have, and have emerged. And, and I think that there's a lot of, you know, these business exec- executives or anybody that's trying to 
and be you know, the one percent in whatever their craft is. And and so you know, what, what what do you do you hold their hand and, and guide them into the kind of the great unknown and maybe you know kind of set forth you know a few risks, re reasonable, manageable risks here and there, and, and kind of push them into maybe a little bit more of an uncomfortable space? Very much so. And it's mm -hmm. it's a delicate art to set up the kind of the contracting phase of a relationship like this. Mm -hmm. um, but it's necessary because, you know, people, people, there's still lots of parts of the world where people don't want to get a therapist because that's only what broken people do. You know, you don't, we don't right. talk about our feelings right. that way. Mm -hmm. But an executive coach is kind of like a, you know, a therapist for startup execs that makes sure that there's a result at the end. <laughs> and so uh, I have to get really clear with my clients of what's at stake. Right. You know, if 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 you don't develop through this next stage of behavioral, you know, flourishing, like if, if you're not able to learn how to delegate, learn how to have difficult conversations with your co-founder, get, get into that 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 territory of challenge, what's at stake. And then when it's very clear to them that they might lose out on their dream or some some opportunities, um, then they're willing to work harder than they would on their own. And so that's the, that's the job of a coach is to, to be able to remind and set clarity to people why they're doing this and then hold their feet to the fire. Yeah. So one of the things that, you know, we explore a lot is this idea that, you know, in sport, it's easy to measure because usually we use a clock or a yardstick. We have something that makes it quantitative rather than right. qualitative. And, you know, and at the same time, you know, we did explore last week in a, couple of race formats specifically in this ultra running space there's there's some times where we're making the capability that you have physically not the differentiator you know it didn't matter if it had fast twitch muscles or a better vo2 max what matters is where did that that head of yours go you know yeah. you're sleep deprived and yes. so i i think there's this bit of a parallel into whether it's startup or life which is that even if it isn't that measurable the effect on mind-body connection really matters. It just yes. seems more logical in sport, but in life it carries over. So how do you play with that yeah. when you're working with people? That's a really great question, Joe, because you know it's people have always intuitively known that the mind-body connection seems useful, but you, you kind of look out East and at Buddhism and stuff. And it's like, well, you know, I don't, I don't have time to invest in that too much and just, <laughs> you know, unless I'm just curious. Yep. Um, but more recently, especially if you look at like the flow research, you know, yeah. of getting into these, you know, um, you know, transient hypofrontal states of where, you know, and, and, and because we're measuring things, if we look at like what's happened with the X games of where the, the growth in excellence is right. exponential. Yeah. And it's showing that, you know, these kids are getting into a flow state. They're getting, you know, close to death. They're, they're measuring their, but they're also within the, the realm, all the things that Mihai Chiksit Mihai talked about in his book flow and all the new research that's coming out that, that there are these triggers that create just radical growth. So all of a sudden there's a lot more attention going into the mind body connection these days um, because we're seeing that there's a lot of, a lot of fruit there. And the way that I like to work with it is, is, create more metrics, right? So if mm -hmm. we're not measuring the mind-body connection, well, how can we? So one of the, the, the secret tools, not, it's, not, it's nothing fancy that I work on with my clients is I make, make them grade themselves on the things that we're working against. Like if it's, 
you know, having difficult conversations, if it's, um, yeah, delegating, if it's facilitating, if it's having inspiring conversations with their, with their employees, I say, it's like, okay, based on what we've been working on, grade yourself on an A to F, right? How did you do? And then if this is a C plus, what does a B look like? Right. And it works like a charm. Right. When you start to apply a, a, a vertical metric to yourself, it creates clarity on, on uh, it's like what Peter Drucker said, what gets managed gets, uh, what gets measured gets managed. Yeah. yeah define. I, I love that. I, oh, go ahead, Sean. I was just gonna say, just to echo, it's define better and then go for it. Yes. Right? That's, what, that's what your grading is doing. Cause really it's not just the grade, it's like what's better coming out of that. And that's, that's the same as you ran a mile in five minutes. Well, you know what better is. It's less. Yes. Here, it's just some, like I did the delegation, you know, too late, you know, or so I have to do it sooner. So there is a way to turn that qualitative into a quantitative, a measurable activity. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I can say yeah. just a little bit more about that. It, the great thing about this is you can author the game you get to set the rules. And like, I think a lot of people, you know, have a, an interesting relationship with being measured against other people. And like, I can speak for myself, like being in a very meritocratic, competitive prep school environment, I had a bad taste in my mouth about yeah. being graded, about being compared to others and needed to get to a progressive postmodern place where it was more focused on egalitarian until I realized that I, I was getting away with, you know, low versions of my own execution that I wasn't performing in the ways that I wanted to. And I had totally written off that whole vertical dimension of life. And really what I needed to do was just change the, con the context and just reauthor the game. And so even the people that are in competitive sports, it's like, well, maybe it's not just about this one dimension. I have other values. And it's, we're seeing this in what's, you know, the conscious business space. It's a multi-stakeholder environment. It's not just right. about profit as the bottom line. There's people, there's planet, there's all these other things that we can, we can measure against and manage against. Mm -hmm. No, I absolutely love that, Robert. And I think that there's there's a big space in 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 moving away from you know being told what to do and and uh, five simple steps to success within anything, and to to rewriting um, you know your your own uh, path to success and and then managing it from there. And so that being said, um, you know maybe let's talk a little bit about that. About you know let's talk about um, an athlete. Um, you know let's say you know Joe and I are in the marathon and running world and really there there is really no there's no plan of how to do this i i just got back from a, a 60 kilometer run this morning and you know that's just what you do and you know nobody told me to do it uh, it was something that i feel like i needed to go out and put in a, a good effort on on the highway and so but yeah i mean when it comes to that maybe let's talk us through a little bit of 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 of, of Kind of creating your own, uh, being a, your own author for whatever success would be. So, so what would be some of your questions you would ask me uh, as I'm I'm getting ready to take on the North American 24-hour record um, in 24 hours, and so um, that's going to be running 278 kilometers in 24 hours. And so, what would what what would be some of the questions that you would ask me as an athlete? that would say, okay, how would you measure your performance today or your diet or your mental prep or, or on and so forth? Is, is it specific questions in regards to, um, you, know, uh, uh, you know, how would you measure your performance today or this week? Or uh, in, in, in what regard would you, would you uh, delegate that? 
Great. I love this question, Dave. And, and let me get to those questions in, in a bit of a circular way, because yeah, it's like I, I, I definitely look up to, to you, you guys as ultra marathon runners and like there's still a part of me. It's like may, maybe I'll get there. Like I'm, I'm a marathon runner. And like like I um, you, you mentioned Born to Run earlier. Like I love mm-hmm. the running books and, and a couple of them that uh, are my favorites is the uh, Sakyong Mimfam Rinpoche, a Tibetan monk, wrote the book uh, "Running with the Mind of Meditation." And mm-hmm. if you haven't come across that one, it's it's one of my favorites because this is a, a Tibetan lineage holder that's also a marathon runner, and and he breaks down how running can be an incredibly potent meditation practice. Of course, it was great to run listening to this audiobook as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I got to put that on my 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 library. Yeah, for sure. And like, you know, in summary, one of the things that I took away from that is like, he treats his, you know, his training runs as potent spiritual journeys. Like Mm -hmm. in the same way people are like, you know, doing psychedelics for therapy these days and doing shamanic journeying. Well, if you're doing, you know, what was it? 60 K this morning, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a spiritual journey. There's a lot mm-hmm. of mental, emotional mm-hmm. stuff, you know, you, you've gotten used to it, <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. But, but there's a lot that, of problem solving for your life, for your business, for your family, for, I imagine all sorts of things get to unlock when you're doing those training runs. And so that's, those are some of the things that intrigue me. But so to, to come back to you, you know, as you look at this, this race coming up, I get curious about when you finish. Like when you're doing the race itself, training and leading up to it, but when you, but when you finish that day and that week afterward and the conversations that you're having with the people that matter in your life about the race, what would you like that to be? You know, how would you like to feel? What would the conversations you would like to have in finishing Mm -hmm. that race? No, absolutely. I I think I could answer that maybe probably a couple things. Number one, that you emptied your tank that you left everything out there. And number two, that you managed all your negative thoughts uh, within the 24 hours that, you know, 12 hours in, 16 hours in, 20 hours in, that you're going to be sabotaging and trying to convince yourself that you're, that it's enough, that, that you've, you've, you've done enough and that it's okay to kind of pull back and, and to listen to those voices in your head to pull back. Um, but you didn't. Um, and that, you know, you, you, you kind of broke through that wall. And, and so those, I think those would be the, you know, to answer your question, those would be the two answers that I would have. Yeah. That's very clear that you, you didn't have to think too much about that, you know, of mm-hmm. leaving it all out on the trail so that, you know, um, and like, I, once again, I get curious if you do that, if you leave it all out on the trail, mm-hmm. like how will that feel afterwards? Yeah, and I, I, you know, to answer that question too, and I love where this conversation is going because I think that our our listeners are, are you know, they, you know, they they look up to these ultra runners, but then this is really kind of cool. We're kind of doing doing this live. Um, I remember when I broke the Canadian twenty four hour record in Torino, Italy, in twenty fifteen. When I, you know, when the what happens is the gun goes off at seven o'clock in the morning, and at seven o'clock the next morning the gun goes off again, and then you stop. And you fall over and it's a two kilometer looped course that you run around and around and around and around and around for 24 hours straight until you can't anymore. And you run that many laps plus the remainder of that last lap. And then they mark that. And so I ran 257 point something kilometers that day um, and got sixth in the world. And I remember lying there on the ground, breaking the Canadian record by over 15 kilometers, just crying. And I, 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 all I remember was thinking, if I could do that, I could do anything in the world. 
if I could, if I could achieve that, if I could go that far beyond what I thought that I could possibly do, then nothing is unachievable from this point moving forward. Yeah. And I think if I could just jump in the middle of this, Robert, because of course, you know, we probably would want to talk for three hours on this, but mm-hmm. I think that what Dave, you said is this idea of managing your negative thoughts. It is a part of life that we accept, but don't do a lot about. Mm-hmm. Maybe sometimes when we do something about it, it isn't a very healthy and productive thing that we go do, you know, maybe we'll have too many drinks or we'll burst out from it, you know, like yelling or something. And in fact, there are ways for us to work on it productively. So you're out there running for, you know, for our listeners, I was trying to do the, uh, the US math, you know, 60 kilometers is 36 miles. And Dave just knocks that off in the morning. And if he does the 278 kilometer record, it's 166 miles in 24 hours. So it's a lot. Uh, but that success is going to be as much, you know, he trains enough physically, he's ready but it's going to be about managing that. And and how do we work on that in life? You know, what is it that Robert, you could even give some advice on like that. It isn't about trying to put yourself in a negative state, right? That's Mm -hmm. not the point. It's about how do we respond when that happens? What is it about that comfortable being uncomfortable thing? How do we practice that? Yeah, this is a great territory we're exploring here. This uh, like, and and just, uh, you know, Dave, that experience that you talked about of like kind of laying there on the ground, just completely having left it all on the track. Mm -hmm. And with that full visceral knowledge of Mm -hmm. knowing that you can do that and that how that's going to translate into your life. And like what you're saying, Joe, how you can encounter every part of our, your mind that says, maybe I shouldn't keep going with this, that you have that in your bones. This isn't watching the movie 127 hours and just seeing Aaron Ralston cut his arm off and being like, mm-hmm. oh, humans are great. No, you had to sweat, <laughs> sweat and bleed that out, right? You, had to, yeah. you earned that self-respect that is going to benefit not just you, it's going to benefit your community and every you know, person you touch. So, so you know, it, it, there's a compelling argument for why to do these things. And, you know, and how do we chunk this down? Well, what I've been really learning a lot about um, in the past few years is like neurophysiology and like, we're still learning how the brain works and how the, you know, the hormones and the, the uh, neurotransmitters work. But for me, when we talk about what, what dopamine is, you know, and as a, as a reward center for lack of a more nuanced understanding of it, but it's, to me, it's understanding the game that I'm playing right? And like, what is the metric that I'm holding up against my, myself? And what does winning mean? Right? When, when, uh, and this shows up for me in productivity, like, if I just show up at my desk and look at email all day, I lose. Even if I get a lot of work done that day, at the end of the day, there's still an inbox there. And I don't know what I did, right? But if mm-hmm. I say, okay, if I do this one project today, if I kick butt on this one creative writing piece for an hour, I win. Mm-hmm. And if I do that, then, then it's it. Then I actually enjoy my dinner better. I'm actually nicer to my partner at the end of the day, right? Mm-hmm. And it propagates that dopamine such that I'm actually going to look forward to doing work more again the next time. So in a lot of ways, like we can use the mind as an ally instead of mm-hmm. an enemy to create the context, but it takes a long time. I, I just started skiing again this year. I moved out to Colorado 22 years ago. And I always, you know, would 
go up with big groups and, you know, just didn't have my gear worked out. And it always just felt like a losing battle because it was just so much stress and work. But this season I started going up by myself and I really would take time with my gear and get it working and like get in that flow state. And all of a sudden I'm like, wow, this is fun. And it's actually hard to get me off the mountain now. You know, it took me 41 years to get to this point where I can actually know how to enjoy these things because I really had to get clear on why I was doing it and what success looked like. Does that make sense at all? I like that. Yeah. No, that totally makes sense, Robert. And when it comes down to, you know, setting achievable tasks and, and working towards a win every day, instead of having a task that's 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 way up here that we end up, you know, falling short. And even, even if we're 50% short, I mean, still, that's we've done quite a bit leading up to that task. But if that task is too high, then we didn't win that day. Right. So having these little achievable wins that only make you want to show up the next day and so is that what you're saying is is to 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 create these little achievable wins and and to win more often than we're going to win bigger down the road yes you know create a game you can win set yourself up for success i was just working with a client today who you know was going into deals that were too ambitious because he wanted those bigger wins Mm -hmm. but was setting himself up for failure and so, you know, we had to work with, okay, so it's like, okay, you know, look out for the deals that are within your sweet spot and know that you're beating yourself up right now, that you're not as optimized as you could be. Get some wins under your belt, repropagate the, do- the dopaminergic system. And then when it's sunny again, go for those new high watermarks. Yeah, I think this idea of an impatient world creates a sort of a self-fulfilling negative prophecy for us, right? Because- we're so impatient, but we actually have so much time. I mean, we really do. You know, like if you can, you know, when I decided I was going to do an Ironman, I gave myself five years. Mm-hmm. If you, any of us give ourselves five years, you can do it. I don't care who you are. Like, doesn't matter. But if you say, I'm going to do it in four months, there's a lot of stuff that happens that may not make that work. But but we got a lot of time, right? That's our to our advantage. and And so... I do think that, you know, sort of trying to set that because the rest of the world we feel is chasing us, but in fact, they're not, you know, they're sort of like right next to us with the same problem. And if we just can, you know, accept that, you know, like to be an ultra marathoner, you know, Dave and I talked to a lot of them, you, you got to sort of be willing to commit 10 years if you want to be any good at it. You know, it's not competitive, right? Now it's not going to happen. We can, any of us can go do what we want. But, but it is the refinement over time. It's that willingness to enjoy the journey. Yes. And, and to, to, we always say that, enjoy the journey, but, but not just because of that, but because the outcome is going to be better. Exactly. I think that's really well put. And I think it's, it's so easy to be like, oh, 10 years to be able to do that. But you know, to, to, to not appreciate what that 10 years can look like in my life and how will this integrate into my life? And the only ones that make it to the end of that 10 years are the ones who balance their lives out in a really appropriate way. And I mean, I look at, you know, before COVID, you know, when marathons were still happening, I did, you know, my, my last two marathons and the context I set for myself was I just wanted to enjoy the training in my life and not get injured. <laughs> like that was the bar I set for myself. Cause I was just getting back into running after having taken a break. And, um, you know, and so that, that, that was, that worked for me. And then, you know, I ended up stacking the marathons really close to each other and ended up 
okay, so here's where I went off. You know, it, it, I'm looking back now. I layered in another like strength training program because I was just too much of a dilettante signed up for another thing. And all of a sudden I was doing heavy squats, not managed. And, you know, I, I, I pulled, you know, uh, like an adductor or something like that. And I was like, oh no, what is this going to do my running? I really like started to break down on that. And I just said, it's like, well, let's just keep working with it. Let's just be as, as aware as I can be. I'm not trying to break any records here. And if I have to not run, that was what my running coach said. She was like, you can always pull over like in these long runs like, that's fine. People do it all the time. And mm -hmm. just knowing that I could do that allowed me to do several runs that I didn't think I was ready for and actually finished off feeling great. And then the big run, the Moab marathon that I did the, at the end, it's my favorite run that I've ever done. Cause I had no idea what was going to happen. I just wanted to get out there and do it. And mm -hmm. it ended up just being this great adventure run of, you know, and I finished and it was fine. I didn't care what the time was. Uh, and the time wasn't actually that bad, you know? No one mm -hmm. even knows what the times are when we, that happens to us. Yeah, I <laughs> know. Yeah. Like, oh, what is that? Is that fast? I don't know. You know, like, unless you're in the <laughs> middle of it. You know, could we dig a little bit into this topic of self-respect for a second? Because mm -hmm. I think that, that's another one of these, you know, the Dave moment at the end of the 24 hour, I have my story. I think it, when we get to that point, what we've done is we sort of did something we never thought we we're going to do, which is prove to ourselves that we're worthy, that that's what we're so often trying to do. Like we think we're trying to prove it to everyone else, but it's really about proving it to ourselves that, you know, we, we, we merit the reason to be, and we have, seize the opportunity at a level that it's somewhat undeniable at that point. You can't sort of just say, oh, well, maybe. It's that point. And that's why I think the emotion is so hard at that moment. Not bad hard, but really there. Because it's like that breakthrough. Now, that's a hard place to get to. But, but if we can sort of go at this, we should have better self-respect to start with. Yes. Are there some tools or some parts of the conversation you have with these high performers or anyone in life that sort of gets them breaking through on that moment so that it serves them. And then when that happens, then it serves everyone else around us too. That's a really good question. And I'm curious to see what I'm going to say on this and, and hopefully we can hold it as a, as an inquiry. And I'm curious to hear what, what you both have to say in answer to this as well. Cause that's the, I think that's the sweet spot, you know, of mm -hmm. like, how do we propagate self-respect in a sustainable reliable way. Because I think you, you can err on the other side as well. Like out here in Boulder, you know, you can take yourself a little too seriously. I've yeah. definitely mm -hmm. been accused of that many times. And right. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, you can't make it so much about me that, um, you know, you're not paying attention to the greater picture anymore or, or, or each other. But then we also can't just do the, the faux altruistic thing of not putting the oxygen mask on ourselves anymore. And then you know, then we get trapped into a story of like, well, I'll just never be able to do that. I'm just not capable of that. Right. So if I look at some of the success factors in my, my life, that uh, uh, the things that I'm very proud of that I have as resources, I'll start in the kind of relational category of the, the support structures as far as people. I worked really hard to have a close relationship with my parents and, and the fact that, you know, I can benefit from where I come from and, and have them close in my life, I hold as priceless. I have a men's group here in Boulder that I've had for 13 years now. 
Uh, you know, Marco Lam, you've had him on the podcast. He's in my group. So I've got these world-class guys who, you know, we weren't all, you know, at this stage, at, you know, 13 years ago, but right. we helped each other get there. And these are, these are my best friends. These mm-hmm. are the guys who I can tell anything going on in my life to and, and, and know that I'll be supported and taken care of there. And they're going to tell it to me straight that if it comes to my self-respect, if I'm, if I'm taking myself too seriously or not enough, they're the ones I can rely on. They're not going to hold the punches. Yep. They're going to tell it to me like it is. And so that I can, I can tune myself in yeah. that way. Mm-hmm. Of course, then there's professional relationships, like having a coach or a therapist or, um, you know, um, e- even having, prof- you know, collegial relationships like this are, are important. And so that's, you know, that's just one category in the relationship category of how we can scaffold in more self-respect. And I think there's probably things in other categories, but I'm curious to hear what you guys have to say on this one. Well, yeah, and I, 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 I find the self-respect piece a little bit of a tricky spot when it comes to, you know, like for me, at least personally in my life, when I'm trying to, you know, you know, be as, you know, I'm not an outlier, but, but do something really, really, really hard that most people deem as being impossible or, or hard um, is, the whole self-respect piece coupled with what's enough. Um, and the, the enough piece is really tricky because, you know, I think that ultimately we all want to feel like we're enough and that we're loved enough and we love one another enough. But yet, you know, I know with my sports psychologist, it's always a, a fine balance between, you know, am I enough? But really, I'm never doing enough because there's always more. There's always there's always one more mile. There's always a little bit quicker. There's always somebody in Japan who started running earlier in the morning than I did. And so there's, there, it's never really ever enough. Um, But so, so it's really hard to, to define yourself with, with, okay, you know, this achievement was good, but it really wasn't good enough. Um, And so I find that with the self-respect piece is, is really quite a delicate balance. Do you want to talk a little bit about the enough piece. Um, is that something that you find a lot with your, with, with, with your clients and who you're working sure. with and especially in the, in the business environment is, you know, especially with all the rewards that are out there, we all seem to think we all want to win big, big, big. And, you know, it takes time to get there, but really at this point in this place that we're in, what is enough? Yeah. And I think that's where, we have to schedule in the appropriate zoom out, you know, get to a higher altitude and ask these questions of the, you know, enough in service of what, right? Self-respect mm-hmm. in service of what, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the same way that for our business, we schedule an annual offsite or the quarterly OKR planning sessions. Like we need to get out of the weeds so that we can look if, are we, are we playing the right game? And so then we can go back into the territory and being able to engage with more confidence, you know, linked up to something. And once again, that's where relationships, advisors, and all of these things can help us set those metrics. And then, of course, there are the elders who are just kind of looking at us from the rocking chairs, you know, you know, grinning <laughs> as we beat, beat our heads against the wall about, am I enough yet? And, uh, you know, and it's just like, well, you'll get over that <laughs> eventually. Yeah, but yeah. I think... Yeah, go ahead, Joe. No, no, sorry, finish up. Yeah, well, I was just going to say, as far as like my clients, it's often, you know, when I start working with them, I always ask these questions of like, okay, what do you want to achieve this year? Mm-hmm. Well, we need to position ourselves for a series C round. We need to, you know, scale out like this. Okay, it's like, okay, if you get that, what is that going to give you that you really want? 
well, that's going to position us in the market this way. It's like, okay, great. Well, if you get that, what is that personally going to give you? What does that make possible for you? And a lot of times the clients will be like, well, shucks, you know, and it's like, you know, a lot of it's like, well, I mean, I guess we add another zero to the target, <laughs> right? It's like we achieve mm-hmm. that funding milestone, add a zero to it. And, and that's where the opportunity is. I can nudge them to be like, there's a whole world of opportunity out here that you will probably be inspired by. Like start looking around and see what interests you, what frustrates you and what really inspires you. And when you start sensing like that and taking notes on it and integrate that into the game you're playing, then things start to get really engaging and interesting. Yeah. No, I think that this intersection of self-respect and enough is a bit of a, you know, the dynamic, but I think that the way that you don't have it become problematic in one's life is, you know, there's a give back opportunity that you always have, which can balance out whether you, you know, your ego is just driving you or you're just a good performer. We shouldn't be embarrassed about our performance. You know, you win the gold medal in the Olympics is a fact. That's a cool thing. We all are happy for you because you put in the work, but maybe there's something you can do for us and, show me how to run faster or help me think about something. So that's one way to sort of temper that it's only about me by sharing your expertise. Cause I think that that's, if you look at that elder model, you know, in the third third of our lives, we all tend to find purpose outside of our own performance. Yeah. Can one, can one just put, pull that earlier in your life and not always, like maybe it meters itself, right? Maybe it's a lot more percentage later, but earlier on, it could be some more about others. I think, I think integrating service into our lives as early as possible is totally doable and can set a good standard, you know, like, you know, bring your kids into volunteer work opportunities. And so to have that feeling of, you know, you work at the soup kitchen all day long, how good it feels. afterwards, or Mm -hmm. even just like, you know, giving away something that you thought was your precious thing that you fight your brother to not touch, like giving it to someone who needs something and feeling how good it is to see the look on their face. Those are things we can totally invite people into at an earlier stage and have them start seeing that, that transpersonal concept of getting beyond just what we think we need. So I think you're right on there, Joe, and that it was a, a, a Zen Roshi who once said, it's like the, you know, the thing about the, you know, do you have an empty cup when you come, you know, or, or, or is your cup full? Are you open for more learnings? Well, how do you empty your cup? Well, you empty it through helping others, through being of service, through having an identity beyond yourself, the joining into an organization or like identifying with, with your culture, with humanity, with some ways that it's not just about Robert here. It's about all of us. And all of a sudden, a lot of things get a lot more simple and chopping wood and carrying water is quite attractive. Yeah. That servant leader model plays out in all of life, right? And, and, you know, the desire to help others achieve is one of the best ways to lead. Uh, it's sometimes we feel it's by telling, but it's actually by assisting and, and knowing what, what our responsibilities are as a friend, a father, a worker, all of that. But every time you help someone else succeed, you've sort of just improved your own sort of lot. And this, this authenticity, you know, it's an overused word right now, but one of the things you said, Robert, which you use your your men's group to help you with is it's very hard for us to put a mirror in front of ourselves 
Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't know what we see. Honestly, we see what we think is in our head, but not who we are. That's right. That's right. So having others who can tell you sort of, honestly, you know, I'm always sort of curious what people say about me because I'm like, I'd like to just know. It could be bad or good. I don't really care at that moment. I'm just intently curious. Like, what am I doing? How is it coming across? Because then you might be able to do something. So finding that environment, I think, is, is critically important, which is that that trust with a coach, whether it's in sport or in life or a friend or someone who feels that comfort. I'm sure you work with uh, entrepreneurs on trying to figure that out as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I think it, setting up a relationship to be the kind of relationship that can be a good mirror for you is uh, is doable, but it's also hard. Like there's there's a lot of social etiquette and structures that prevent people from actually saying what's true, you know? And I, I found like in my workshops, I do like a lot of like getting real. Like I, I set up the container for how can we actually say what we're really experiencing as, as our greatest gift to someone. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people are terrified at the concept. And my theory on that is because the most experience people have with getting real is when the shit hits the fan. And yeah, like when they're yeah. losing their job or they're losing their relationship, they're blowing up at someone and, you know, all the emotions are involved there, but that doesn't have to be, you know, in getting real, we can actually create a context in any moment where we say like, no, I actually want, want to hear what you have to say. And in establishing relationships that last in a long-term way uh, is, is a recipe for success. So like in my men's group, it's an understanding that that's how we show up for each other. This can be integrated into your partnership, right? With your spouse, that as an evolutionary relationship, we're fully optimized if we set aside time to skillfully say what matters most in a way that's successful. And similarly with colleague relationships at work, like if you're a, a, you know, have a co-founder, you're starting a new business, setting aside time to set the expectations, to really share your user manual for me of like what works best for me and what doesn't. How do we optimize the conditions for our success? that's happening more and more and people are more and more amenable to that. No, and I agree, Robert. And I think that there's a, there's a large space for, you know, for that part of the conversation when it comes to, yeah, we, we typically feel like we're losing and, you know, therefore we, 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 we try to distance ourselves from those feelings altogether. You know, let's talk a little bit about um, kind of leadership through vulnerability. I know that that's really quite a, a you know common topic, especially with Brene Brown's work and, and how that's really gone gangbuster. I know a lot of people who are, who are taking in her, her work now. And, and I think, I think there's, there's a really great space in there and with, when it comes to authenticity, but then also being vulnerable and in, in leadership through vulnerability, showing others that it's okay to be real and it's okay to, 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 to lead in a space of, Hey, I'm, I'm concerned about this as well too. And, and, and here are my concerns. Um, people feel quite safe about that. So, um, you know, let's talk a little bit about leadership through vulnerability. Do you, would, would you agree that that vulnerability and authenticity have uh, a similar space in the conversation? Yeah. I mean, it's like on one hand, a hundred percent on the other hand, it's more complex as always, yes. right mm-hmm. there. We can definitely get too idealistic about, wow, if we were just all authentic, people used to come to my workshops to be like, wow, authentic relating, the world needs to be, this is going to save the world. It's like, okay, so, you know, hold your horses there. Like you still got to go, go to work tomorrow. You're still going to have feelings. And so the hundred percent part is that yes, when someone shows up 
and brings all of themselves, like how they really feel about what's going on without managing the communication, without controlling the communication. That's the Aletheia moment of the, you know, of the, as Heidegger wrote about, of like where the obscurations go away and there's just truth, right? Mm -hmm. in, the, in the way that the, you know, the, the Greeks talked about it, that transmission of truth. And that's the best way to do it. So I'm always encouraging my clients of just like, can you, can you go a little deeper? Can you cut a little deeper in sharing more about where you're coming from? Because that'll enroll the person and then more brainstorming will come out of that. Mm. But the reason people are pumping the brakes on these things all the time is because they know what it's like when you control the conversation, when you're trying to smuggle in something that looks like authenticity, but you're trying to actually control the conversation and how that takes things off the rails. And we do have to be strategic and you can have your career end in a heartbeat, you know, with one thing I say on this podcast could have, you know, things completely go off the rails. And so we, we have to be smart. We have to set ourselves up for success, but that doesn't mean we can't create contexts and relationships that get all of us and benefit from having all of us. Yeah. I think that the, the one that I like that I recently heard is, um, with the lack of information, don't create a false narrative, you know, which is that we nice. always, you know, we create this thing that's not happening, you know, it's like, but we live there. And instead in this circumstance, we can maybe just seek out, you know, oh, the reason why Robert didn't call me is he didn't want to talk to me. Well, no, maybe, you know, he was out for a run and he didn't bring his phone with him. You know, like there, there's often a really good reason, but, but we usually take the victim card and play it all too hard instead of actually seeking to understand. And then usually mm -hmm. the explanation is usually very tolerable, yeah. um, but we have to be willing yeah. to understand and listen. Well, you just spoke to a really important point there about personal responsibility, right? Of like, well, I, I'm, I'm naturally going to judge and make up a story that puts me in the right and them in the wrong, but <laughs> I know that I'm a human being and so I'm going to curb that by like extending regard, giving the benefit of the doubt. But I've got to set myself up for success to do that by having a practice that's going to eviscerate that ego. And I think, you know, ultra marathon running and things like that are, are qualify as a spiritual practice of just it's taken out the trash of ourselves as, as partial human beings. It's going to take care of all that stuff that wants to dominate our perception of the world. So then we can just show up vulnerable and open. And, mm -hmm. you know, to me, that's what practice is all about so that I can show up to my relationships with the best of me. Well, you know, the, the ultra and the running as meditation um, is something that I've believed wholeheartedly in over the past 20 years. And the uh, there are methods, whatever they are for all of us, I think they're important to develop and they serve us very, very well over time. And, uh, you know, uh, we've been, I, I went out for a run on the weekend and it was a 40 mile an hour wind that I had to run into. It was short, you know, six miles, three miles straight into the wind and like three minutes faster per mile going back because I had a tailwind. But on the way out, I had to sort of like love it, you know, like, because I can't control the wind. And it was yeah. sort of easy to sort of accept how hard it was um, and, and not sort of, I couldn't judge the situation because the wind wasn't doing anything to me, you know, like it was, but it really wasn't. It's, it's just there. And, and I think in, in life, these headwinds, 
if we can sort of accept that that's just there, then maybe we don't feel, you know, such a burden from the circumstance and we can find that pathway. Um, you know, it, this has been a truly amazing conversation for all of us because, you know, I think what you're helping us do is to connect that multidimensional life that we have. None of us are just something, you know, Dave has a full-time job and he's an ultra marathoner, you know, someone's a father and a crane operator, you know, someone's a student and a girlfriend. And, you know, we're, we're, we play in different roles. Um, and so, you know, as you think about, you know, all these years, and I'm sure you're going to serve us all with your continued passion around caring for people, which is what seems like you've become, you know, you're a, a caregiver of sorts, just to a, a community of people who operate in a different way. You know, is there some sort of, you know, your version of chasing tomorrow that you're going after as we go forward that, that Robert's thinking about that, you know, you could leave our listeners with? Yeah, that's a, it's a strong question, Joe. And I think, you know, it's just like following up from what you were just describing of like, if we're chasing tomorrow, we are having to like to turn into the headwinds and, and face the unknown. And, you know, when, when I was like studying um, theology and like, you know, trying to understand like the roots of the church, it's like, I learned that the word sacrament is the same word as mystery. And so that things that are sacred are unknown. And that if we make our life sacred, that we are having the humility to face into the unknown, knowing that we can't control our circumstances knowing that we walk on the hallowed grand ground of our ancestors. And that requires some respect and reverence that we can't just go on to autopilot and think that we can control and make things, you know, with what our immature mindset says they are. And so it, it, as I look out ahead of me, you know, what I'm compelled about is, you know, making my life as centered and aligned in a sacred way as I can uh, to, to continue being a caretaker. And I, I so uh, appreciate that reflection, because that's what served me the most is when I help people that, that that's where, um, I, I feel it. And, and so the projects that are on my plate right now, I've got like too many projects that like, I have to learn how to set boundaries with and learn how to say, say no to some things. Um, and I, I, I've got an organization right now that's trademarked for the practice that we were teaching here in Boulder for the past decade. And we're now trying to see if we want to, you know, tangle an international, you know, coalition of all the practitioners that have been doing this over the years and have them all get into alignment. Wow. And it sounds crazy. And my lawyers are like, what are, what are you doing? You have a, a business yeah. that you're actually doing well with. Why would you distract yourself with Absolutely. something that doesn't seem to have an upside to it? <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, well, if we can bring integrity into a practice like this, then, then, then that's something. And we might look like the evil empire for a while, but, but, uh, but if we can collaborate more, if we can create more, then we can engage more. We can have more economic feedback from that. People can actually be making more of a living doing what they want to do. And those are the kinds of things that inspire me and make me feel like I'm, uh, I'm earning my keep. Yeah. Well, I love that, Robert. And it, it sounds to me like you're, you know, looking at your North star with a lot of courage and uh, yeah, Joe and I are big fans here. We, we, we love to have you on again. Uh, this has just been nothing but a slice. Really appreciate your time, Robert. 
Well, thank you guys so much. I'm honored to have this conversation with you. Uh, let me know how I can support and I look forward to a lot more. Thanks, Rob. Maybe we'll go out on a good uh, long run together one day. I'm there. I'm down. Just don't expect okay. me to keep up. <laughs> no, no, no. We'll, we'll go at whatever pace that we need to. Thank you very much, Robert. Yeah. Thanks, Robert. Cheers, guys. Hey, Dave, I truly enjoyed talking to Robert. It was so cool to hear his expert perspective on what drives people and how to coach them to success. And did you happen to notice the accuracy of his language and the insights he provided? I guess that's what happens when you work with high performers for 25 years. This was an episode where I was taking notes throughout. I think we're going to have to get him back in the near future for a refresher to help you and me think about what really goes on in the minds of a high performer. Well, there you have it. That's a wrap for this week. As always, a big shout out to our sponsor, Performance Tea. You can find them on www.performancetea.com. And they've given us a discount code for any of our listeners to get 20% off their purchase. Just use Chasing20 at checkout. And we would greatly appreciate it if you could follow us on Instagram and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. That would just be awesome. And as always, a huge thanks for coming along with us on this journey and chasing tomorrow with us. Thanks. Thanks.